Before lockdown, when I was preaching on Sunday mornings, we were going through the book of Acts. And my message this morning, I did prepare for that first Sunday of lockdown. But I think it was around about Tuesday or Wednesday, Boris announced that everything was to shut down. And so I've never preached this message. It's been uh, on my desk for some 18 months or so. And so this morning, now we're going to recommence our study in Acts. It'll only take us a few weeks to finish our study because we're in Acts chapter 21. And we're looking at the passage from verse 17 of 21 right through to verse 30 or the end of chapter uh, 22. And those uh, retired pastors in the congregation uh, would know what I mean when I say that sometimes as a minister, when you're going through a book in the Bible, you hit some passages and you wonder, what on earth can I get out of this? And uh, as we're coming towards the end of the book of Acts, of course, it's an historical book and uh, dealing with uh, uh, Paul's journey and ending up in Rome. And I, as I was reading uh, these portions of script, this portion of Scripture, then I was uh, thinking of um, John Newton, who used to come home from morning prayers. He was an Anglican, uh, and he, the, the author of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, he would come home from morning prayers, and he would uh, spend some time in devotion with God. He would have his Bible open, preparing his sermon, and he would sit down there, and he had his pipe in his mouth, and he would say, Now then, Lord, What's in this portion that I can share with my congregation? Well, I didn't have my pipe in my mouth. I haven't got one. But uh, I was uh, racking my brains and saying, help, Lord, uh, help me in this portion of Scripture. So I trust you're sitting comfortably because we've got a large portion of Scripture to look at this morning. Uh, as I said, Acts 21, 17, right through to 22, 30. However, I'll do my best to uh, get it all within the next 20 to 30 minutes. Let me just quickly summarize the story for you. Paul and his companions headed to Jerusalem where they assembled together with many of the church elders. Paul spoke of his ministry to the Gentiles saying that they had accepted the word of the Lord. They all rejoiced at the sound of this good news and they praised God for his good works. They spoke to the Jews who were not willing to pair with the Gentiles and were not willing to forsake the teaching of Moses regarding the holy laws. The apostles continued their ministry in Jerusalem and Paul, handed o and Paul headed over to the synagogue so that he there could preach the gospel. He cleansed himself at the temple before he started his ministry in Jerusalem. However, when he was ready, men from Asia approached him and grabbed him. They accused him of preaching against the law and against the people. They claimed that he stirred up trouble and he was no good for the city. And the people became angry and they took hold of Paul, took him out of the temple uh, and handed him over to the guards. He was captured by centurions who were ordered to arrest him. And as he was being led away, he asked if he could address the crowd. And in Acts chapter 2, Paul begins to 
present his defense in public. He told them of his pedigree, that he was born in Tarsus, that he grew up in the same city as his listeners. He noted that he originally persecuted the followers of Christ. He imprisoned them and saw many sentenced to death. Paul then describes his conversion. In other words, he shares with them his testimony. The crowd then turned on Paul and the commander had him flogged. Paul later cites his Roman citizenship and the commander releases him and brings him before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. So that's what's roughly in these two chapters. And I was racking my brain, what can I bring from that chapter that may help us and be relevant for us today. And there are four things that I saw in this passage. The first thing we learn from this passage is this. Good leaders complement and not compete. Good leaders complement and not complete. Listen, compete. Listen to verses 17 to 20 of that 21st chapter. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us joyfully. The next day, Paul went in with us to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and recounted one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they glorified God. There was no rivalry here at Jerusalem. There was no competition as to who could win the most converts or who built the biggest church. The headquarters church at Jerusalem, which would have been made up of Jews, rejoiced in Paul's success among the Gentiles. And listen, in our city of Swansea, I want to see the Baptists, the Independents, the Methodists, and so on flourish. While I don't think I could ever become an Anglican because I'm a committed nonconformist, however, I want to hear news of every evangelical Anglican vicar experiencing success so that I can rejoice with him or her. I want to rejoice with other pastors of my own fellowship when they experience growth and success. You see, here at Waterfront, we're not in competition with Tigwin at or with Brackler Tabernacle at Bridgend. We complement and we rejoice in each other's successes in the gospel. Just as the elders in Jerusalem rejoiced with Paul in his success among the Gentiles. You see, sadly, it's a known fact that church leaders sometimes secretly rejoice at the misfortune of other churches. It can give them a feel-good factor when they hear of another church in decline. God help us. God help us. We're in this together. 
And when we hear of the success of another church, a church that is true to the gospel, may it be said of us as leaders here at Waterfront, like those of Jerusalem, when they heard this, they glorified God. And the same can be true of groups within the church. We complement and not compete. The seniors are not in competition with the youth. And pre-lockdown, neither were little ducklings in competition with Messy Church. When we cultivate a culture of love, a culture of ministries helping and complementing other ministries, standing up for each other, empowering each other, and celebrating with each other, I believe we're doing things the Holy Spirit way. Let's be a church that complements, a church that has the attitude of a young pastor who told his congregation, you were once young, and I will one day be old. Let's not com compete. Let's complement. Because without, you, without me, you are nothing. And without you, I am nothing. Your success should be my success. And my success should be your success too. May this attitude of the Jerusalem leaders always be ours as a fellowship. When they heard this, they glorified God. And if you're here this morning as a student and, and maybe you come from a, from a far bigger church than this, let me tell you, we rejoice with you in what God is doing in your home church. And if you're carrying something of that blessing with you, well, share it with us because we want to serve that surf, that same wave of blessing as well. Then the second thing we see in these two chapters is this. Weakness in the face of strength. Let me read you verses 21 to 24. They, that is the Jews, have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to, be, not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. The, there are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but you yourself are living in obedience to the law. They're asking, Moses, they're asking Paul to do something which he was preaching against. However, look down at verse 26. The next day... Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When you read these verses regarding the Apostle Paul, you have to ask yourself, is this the same Paul 
that wrote Romans and Galatians. Paul was not only the designated apostles to the Gentiles, as we know from, from Galatians 2.8 and Romans 11.13. He was a staunch defender of Christianity against all attempts to force them into the Jewish mold. A quick reading of Galatians is enough to see his strong resistance to those Judaizers that had crept into the Galatian church and tried to force them to, to observe the various Jewish customs. Clearly, the Apostle Paul was the most influential voice in the church against Christianity, becoming like the Old Testament religion. And yet here we find the Apostle Paul compromising in one sense, weakness, even in the face of strength. And of course, the big question is, did Paul go too far in trying to please his Jewish brothers in Christ, and make a serious judgment of error. Matthew Henry in his commentary says this, It was great weakness to be so fond of the shadows when the substance was come. One thing is clear here. Despite Paul being a man of great courage, who had endured so much persecution for the sake of the gospel, yet, like us all, he had his weaknesses. However, I don't believe that Paul sinned here. Error of judgment, yes, but sin, no. And it's easy for us this morning to be critical of him. But listen, there's nothing new under the sun. How often have we compromised in order to appease others. How often have we criticized a brother or a sister for being weak just because his or her weakness is different to that of ours? In one sense, I find this passage rather encouraging because it teaches me three important lessons. First, God chooses imperfect men and women for his service. And that's why I can stand here this morning. It teaches me, secondly, that Christian maturity does not mean Christian perfection. Even the great Apostle Paul himself, as we see here, was not perfect. And it teaches me, thirdly, despite our many errors, God is outrageously gracious and continues to bless our ministry. When I think of my weaknesses and my shortcomings, sometimes I'm amazed that God hasn't struck me, even as I stand before you. But God is outrageously gracious. And despite our failures and our shortcomings, just like the Apostle Paul, 
who compromised here. God still blesses. David was a man after God's own heart. He too had failed, but he knew the grace of God and his outrageousness. And he said, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. The early church was soundly criticized and condemned for their determination to follow Jesus. Did they make mistakes along the way which could be rightly criticized? Yes, they did. Why? Because they were human, just like you and me. So weakness in the face of strength. The third thing it teaches me is opposition despite compromise. Sometimes we think if we compromise, we'll get away with things. But listen, verse 30 to 31, the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. Listen, despite Paul trying to appease the people by joining in some of his fellow Jews with purification, they still sought to kill him. Why? Well, the answer is simple. They found the gospel offensive. You see, we can compromise our standards and we can try to blend in to the culture around us. However, if we believe and proclaim the gospel in its purity, it's bound to clash with a non-Christian culture around us. You see, the gospel is offensive because it teaches that we are all sinful and we're all corrupt, and the only way for us to be saved is if God would give us salvation as a free gift. We cannot earn it because our best efforts fall short of the glory of God. The gospel is offensive because it speaks of a Savior that was crucified, and our only means of salvation is found in His atoning sacrifice. The gospel is offensive because it teaches that this crucified Savior rose from the dead three days later and is alive forevermore. This is ridiculous as far as our human minds are concerned. The gospel is offensive because it declares there is no salvation outside of faith in this crucified and risen Jesus. And this was the gospel that Paul was preaching. And despite his seemingly compromise to appease the Jews once he opened his mouth and declared salvation through Jesus, they turned against him. And so in this passage, it tells us in our postmodern and political correct mad age that we live in, don't bother to compromise 
your Christian principle to appease the prevailing culture, because once they hear your message, it will aggravate them anyway. However, we must never forget that despite its message being offensive, it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, and despite fierce opposition that it brought the apostle, yet thousands through his ministry found Jesus as Savior and Lord and rejoiced in sins forgiven. Times may change, but the gospel does not. In it, we find a message that can still transform lives today. And then finally, we see here that meekness is not weakness. Listen to verse 25 to 29 of chapter 22. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Paul had been sharing his testimony, telling the people of his past persecution of Christians and of his Damascus Road experience, which completely transformed his life. This had infuriated the crowd, and to cut a long story short, he found himself being flogged. Now, despite Paul being a peaceful, meek, and humble man, he was no pushover. His meekness was no weakness. And here Paul stands up to a Roman centurion and cites his rights. Yes, the Scripture calls us to patient endurance, even to suffering for the sake of Christ. But the Bible does not teach us to be a people who simply and silently put up with all kinds of abuse and injustice. Christ-like love will indeed call us to be a people of endurance, of trust, of hope, and patience. But it will also fire our passion for God's truth and for justice. Even as we put up with people's faults and weaknesses, we will not allow them to trample over the image of God in us as if we were helpless doormats. Rather, 
we will learn how to walk the second mile with people even as we refuse to let them walk all over us. This passage teaches us that it's okay to stand up for our human rights as Christians. And we may find ourselves like Paul, having to do this even more and more in a Christian hostile age. I remember giving Bethlehem a telling off once, and she turned to me and she said, Daddy, children have rights, you know. (laughs) Well, government, listen, Christians have rights, you know, and we have the right to stand up for injustice. Yes, this rather lengthy passage this morning, and not one that I found easy to get a sermon from. However, it does teach us the following. Don't despair because of your imperfections. God's grace is outrageous, and He will still use you. Don't bother to compromise because people will still find the gospel offensive. Don't be afraid to stand up for yourself. And don't be someone that competes, but rather in church life, be one that complements. Thanks for listening. God bless you.